BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the intro to Robin Williams' Live at the Roxy comedy special we're hearing. He's reenacting the game show to tell the truth where a panel of celebrities try to figure out who's telling the truth. It's the perfect setup for Robin. He's gone from a redneck to a flamboyant Texan to a confused Russian. The year is 1978. Robin's wearing his iconic rainbow suspenders. These have become a symbol of his Mork character, but they're actually straight from his own closet. As you scan the audience, you can pick out some of Robin's famous friends scattered in the crowd. There's Tony Danza, Henry the Fonz Winkler, and Three's Company's John Ritter. He'll later be pulled on stage by Robin to improvise. Despite all the big celebrities in the audience, this show feels really intimate. Robin's bounding across the stage and climbing onto the balcony as if it were his own personal jungle gym. He looks so incredibly at home. And the audience basks in the atmosphere he creates. Welcome back to Knowing, Robin Williams from Macmillan Podcasts. I'm your host, Christy Westgard. And I'm Dave Itzkoff. I'm a New York Times culture reporter, and I'm the author of a biography on Robin Williams called Robin. We left off with Robin newly inducted into the shiny world of Hollywood's A-list. And Robin's publicist, Estelle Endler, gave that ominous warning. And she said, don't you realize they build him up just so they can tear him down? He's about to learn the true cost of fame. I was performing after one of the shows uh, at the Comedy Store on a Monday. That's Jim Stahl. He's a writer and voice actor who played Nelson Flavor on Mork and Mindy for two years. But before that, in the mid-late 70s, he and Robin did improv together as part of a troupe called the Comedy Store Players. Robin and I would always do an improvisation, first line, last line. So we would take a suggestion from the audience, give us the first line of a scene. Thank you. Now give us the last line. Boom, boom. I thought I knew how to improvise all the rules of improvisation. Robin was all over the place. Um, he was this force of, of uh, energy he would twist and turn the reality, and he would go off on something. And then I was the one that would remember the last line. 
the onstage chemistry that they created would soon come in handy for Jim. After one of the shows uh, at the Comedy Store on a Monday, uh, I said to Robin, Hey, uh, I understand uh, my agent called and said they're uh, having auditions for this part of Nelson Flavor for Mork and Mindy. Uh, So he said to me, well, when's your audition? And I said, oh, it's tomorrow. He goes, okay. So I was next day. I'm very nervous, memorizing my lines. And I'm reading. And I'm trying to do the best I can. And all of a sudden, I oh, coach. (laughs) And Robin comes bounding in. (laughs) And he he crashes my, my audition. And I remember I looked at him like, Robin, this is my life. What, what are you doing? <laughs> so he just starts improvising, and I improvise with him, and we're doing shtick and bouncing, and uh, God knows what else is happening. And I, I don't know how much time went by. It seemed like a day. <laughs> and somebody goes, and cut! Uh, you know, and I leave, and I'm thinking, uh, oh, my God, you know. My agent calls me, how'd it go? And I went, I don't know. <laughs> So they cast me in the part. They said, uh, your your audition was terrible, but you were funny with Robin. Jim and Robin began an intense production schedule for season two of Mork and Mindy that included a live audience taping every Friday. We would start taping at five o'clock. <clears throat> and most shows, it would take them two hours. Our show would start at five and then the crew would they, they would take bets. Okay, you think we're gonna go to Double Golden? Double Golden. Double Golden was if you go past midnight on a Friday night, you're into Saturday. So not only are you doing overtime, but you're doing weekend overtime. So it's double golden. The show was experimenting with special effects that could take a long time to create and often went wrong in those early days. But the long runtime was also because of Robin, who couldn't always stick to the script. Any other show, they would reset and they would do the exact same dialogue because they're, you know, just let's just do it. Robin hated the fact that we got to do the same dialogue. Well, the audience isn't going to laugh because they heard these lines. I heard these jokes. So then he would start to improvise. (laughs) Robin would take what was written in the script and then give you 20 other versions of the original. If you asked him to drink juice for a scene, he'd juggle it, pour it from afar. For Robin, every take was a chance to get a laugh from the live audience. He found it unimaginable to deliver the same line over and over again. He was still an improv comic first and foremost. In fact, even as he pulled full days on Mork and Mindy, he still set aside time after hours to hit up the comedy clubs. We would always come back and do Monday nights at the comedy store. After the show, someone would usually suggest going to Hermosa Beach to perform at Comedy Club Magic, then a house party littered with agents and models. And Jim would typically leave by this time, but Robin would continue going wherever the party took him. Sometimes he wouldn't even make it home before going to work the next day. Well, he has built up this whole routine for himself, this whole kind of ritual of work, and the work goes hand in hand with all of this uh, substance abuse and kind of self-destructive behavior. Our call would typically be 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. 
which was not hard. And Miles, our stage manager, would look around and go, okay, Jim signed in, Pam signed in, Jay signed in, Kina Hecht signed in, no Robin. So they, he would start calling his manager and his agent, and he would start calling around other people. <laughs> they were going, where's Robin, where's Robin, where's Robin? And then Robin would come in, oh, I'm so sorry. And he looked tired. And that was sort of an ongoing, almost like a running gag of how late would Robin be. But they have a test to see if you've been drinking a little. What they do normally is they pull you over to the side and say, do you realize you're weaving? To which you reply, weave? I don't even knit. <laughs> Robin made light of the consequences in his stand-up routines. But for Robin, alcohol and drugs, namely cocaine, were all part of the entertainment world he'd made his home in. And he steeped himself in every aspect of it, including its darkest corners. And then you make the mistake of going to work. <laughs> what a fool, because you can hear snails crawl. People can see it in his face and in the way that he conducts himself that, you know, physically he's, uh, you know, really abusing himself. And because of his young age, he can kind of get away with it, but not, not entirely. Everybody, certainly around Mork and Mindy and certainly the people that know him well in his private life, they know what's going on. But this is becoming really uh, ingrained for him that the whole ritual of performance is not just that you go out on stage and you do your bit and you come back, but that you then go and hang out with everybody and you all get into it. And all that carousing and all that partying is part of the act of doing comedy. And that becomes a pattern of behavior that gets kind of imprinted on his brain. And Robin wasn't alone for all of those late nights. He was known by the rest of Hollywood and by his wife, Valerie, to enjoy the company of other women. Well, a lot of information is coming back to Valerie that either she's reading in the news or hearing directly from friends what Robin is getting into in his private time and all these liaisons and all this misbehavior that he thinks is somehow a secret from her is really not. And she knows she is being cheated on and she knows he's being deceitful to her and that was extremely hurtful. While Valerie gave Robin a long leash, she did try to intervene every once in a while. She once asked Jim to go out with Candy Clark, an actress and model, who she saw as a threat to her and Robin's relationship. She was, you know, frustrated. Jim, will you go out with her so Robin doesn't date this girl? I was like, what? Oh, okay. What the heck? You know, because I, I didn't understand, you know, his personal life. Did they have an open relationship? Didn't they? While Robin's personal life was fraying at the seams, he was reaching new heights in his career. In a renegotiation with his managers, ABC agreed to pay him double, or 30000 per episode. But despite this financial success, when Mork and Mindy came back for its second season in September of 1979, the network decided to make a number of changes that would affect the show's popularity. The problem was that almost as soon as Mork and Mindy became successful, ABC started to tinker with it and they moved its time slot to a much more competitive night and tried to put it up against Archie Bunker's place. It got clobbered in the ratings. They tried to make changes in the cast and take away supporting characters who were also 
a little more innocent, who also kind of complimented Mork's naivete and put him around people who were more adult and knowing. And certainly in some of the later episodes, it becomes uh, much more gratuitous in terms of sexual content and double entendres and women in skimpy outfits and becoming what was called a, a jiggle show in that era. <laughs> While Mork and Mindy's decline and Popeye's box office flop were cause for concern, these issues were minimized by an unspeakable tragedy. The man who shot John Lennon walked up to the musician as he was leaving his limousine. According to eyewitnesses, he said, Mr. Lennon, and then fired at him point blank at least five times. The senseless murder of one of the most unifying and beloved musicians put Robin on edge. Yeah, I think it was a very understandable reaction that any celebrity of any stature might have to Lennon's death. When you see somebody who is that famous get gunned down in cold blood, of course it makes you fear for your own health and safety. Robin had good reason to be concerned. That same winter, as he was getting off the stage at the comedy store, he was approached by an audience member who said, Hey man, I know where you live because I've seen you coming out of there. And while it was a seemingly hollow threat, it showed that even in the safe space of the comedy clubs that Robin loved so much, he doesn't know who's watching him and what their motivations might be. Jim recalled the precautions Robin began to take to ward off any potential threats. He had to be driven places, and he had to change his phone number all the time, and he had to be more and more private because you would get, you know, you would get hounded. As Robin tried to come to terms with this scare, he paid tribute to John Lennon's untimely death by using the show to help process his emotions. Mork would give this kind of monologue to Orson, who is his handler back on the planet Orc, and basically tell him what he had learned that week. And there was an episode that aired right around that time where the Mork character literally meets Robin Williams, and Robin played both of those roles. Oh, yes, sir. This week, sir, I learned what it's like to be famous on Earth. That's good. And the whole closing monologue is Mork trying to explain to Orson that fame has a cost and celebrity carries this real burden. And Orson literally says to him, Mork, I don't believe you. Isn't fame its own reward? Oh, yes, sir, it is. But when you're a celebrity, everybody wants a piece of you, sir. Unless you can say no, there'll be no pieces left for yourself. And then Mork rattles off this whole list of... American celebrities who died extremely young. And the last person that he says is John Lennon. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Lenny Bruce, Freddie Prince, and John Lennon. When we come back from the break, Robin gets a wake-up call that forces him to change his ways, along with a very good reason to do so. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As Mork and Mindy moved into its third season, the network tried to revive it by writing in none other than Robin's childhood idol, Jonathan Winters, better known as Johnny. He was cast as Mirth McConnell, the son of Mork and Mindy, but at this point in his life, Johnny wasn't doing so well. He was an extremely wounded person. He was a former Marine. He had been treated for bipolar. He had been institutionalized twice in his life. And he was certainly cognizant of all this. And so in one sense, the riffing and the improvisation and the ad-libbing was his way of keeping all that at bay and not having to necessarily confront it or immerse himself in it. But also I think everybody around him, everybody who worked on the show with Winters, and that certainly included Robin, gave him a little bit of breathing room, gave him the opportunity to kind of make mistakes or flub a line and they would all dive in and try to rescue him. And if he said something wrong, they would just sort of take the scene in that direction and not even acknowledge that there was a a mistake. I mean, they all respected and admired him so much. Mm, Yeah. Jim told me how he'd swung by set for a visit during Mark and Mindy's final season, and he had a pretty strange encounter with Johnny. Uh, They introduced me to Johnny, and I'm talking to Jonathan Winters, going, oh, hey, and John's doing that. Oh, Oh, Herb, you're here. Yes, it's a tough... It's a tough afternoon with these sailors, you know, and I'm going like, oh, okay, and I'm playing along. And the stage manager comes up to me and goes, Jim, Jim, could you help get Johnny on the stage? We're, we're waiting to shoot a scene. <laughs> so, I, so, I, so I turned to Johnny and I said, uh, uh, Captain, I think the men are... About to mutiny, sir. Your presence is required on the poop deck or something, you know. And he goes, oh, yes, hi. Of course. And then he he starts, we improvised our way onto the set. (laughs) It was the weirdest thing. Johnny's presence lifted Robin's spirits, though. And he also attracted comedian John Belushi to the set pretty regularly. Belushi had been hanging around at Paramount because... He was trying to figure out what the next phase of his own career was going to be. He had met and hung out with Robin through Saturday Night Live, and Belushi was also a huge admirer of Jonathan Winters. So he was coming to the Mork and Mindy set just to hang out and basically watch Winters work and watch him do his thing, and he just got off on it. But Robin also knew that he would be visiting, and it was an opportunity for them to also hang out in their extracurricular time. And it was certainly no secret that Belushi was also a very bad drug abuser and that they even had sort of drug-using friends and dealers in common. This sounds like the perfect story. So on one night, Belushi is hanging out in his bungalow at the Chateau Marmont, and Robin has been on his usual trajectory. He'd finished at Mork and Mindy, gone out and done a couple of pop-in sets at the clubs and is partying and basically the message gets back to him Belushi wants to see you in his bungalow and Robin goes there and finds a very kind of seedy scene there that Belushi is already pretty far gone on something or some things and there's other people hanging around that are making Robin kind of uncomfortable 
Robin left soon after seeing how groggy Belushi was. When he got back home, he told Valerie about the strange meetup and noted one woman who looked especially tough and scary. Kathy Evelyn Smith, a former backup rock singer, will plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter and three lesser charges in the drug overdose death of comedian John Belushi. Prosecutors said Ms. Smith would enter the pleas on Wednesday at a scheduled court appearance in Los Angeles. Belushi was found dead in March 1982 from an overdose of heroin and That news, while Robin is sleeping, that news is basically making its way all throughout Hollywood and the entertainment industry. And Robin goes to work at Mork and Mindy the next day, and the producers have found out that Belushi is dead, and they know that when Robin learns this, it's going to devastate him. And so they try to find somebody who can break it to him as gently as possible. The task fell to Pam Dauber. When she spoke with Robin, she also gave him some tough love. She told him straight up, Robin, if that ever happens to you, I will find you and I will kill you first. The fact that Robin is one of the last people to see John Belushi alive, that immediately implicates him in this larger party scene. So he can't disguise that element of himself anymore, that sort of innocence of Mork, that unknowingness, that's lost forever. Robin cooperated in a grand jury inquiry into Belushi's death, and all of that bad press made it impossible for Robin to promote Mork and Mindy. Not that he really minded that. By then, the show had plummeted to 49th in the ratings, so ABC pulled it from their schedule for the month of March. And come May, the final episode aired. Mork and Mindy was to be replaced by a Happy Days spinoff called Joni Loves Chachi. It wasn't just that he was losing this thing that of course, paid him a lot of money and it helped make him popular and gave him a place to work every week. But he really had a kind of second family at the show and he had Pam and he had his directors and the writers there and he kind of, you know, he had a certain amount of familiarity and a, a, just a base of operations. And now he's kind of cast adrift. With his breakout role now behind him, Robin was able to refocus on other parts of his life that he'd severely neglected. Number one on his list was his relationship with Valerie. The couple had been put through the ringer, but both were ready to move on in a big way. The decision to have a child was an active one on their part. There was some recognition between the two of them that their marriage was really in kind of dire straits. It certainly there was an awareness of Robin's infidelity and his uh, misbehavior and his drug and alcohol abuse. And that was really uh, straining things quite a bit. And the opportunity, at least that they had once uh, Mork was over and that Robin was focusing more on his film career, this is a chance to kind of right the ship. On April 11th, 1983, Valerie gave birth to a boy she and Robin named Zachary, or Zach for short. And Robin took wholeheartedly to fatherhood. And they handed me my son, they held him up, and he went, My God, he's hung like a bear! That's the umbilical cord, Mr. Williams. It was really this kind of beatific experience for him, that he loved Zach immediately and, and would go on to tell stories about how, you know, the moment that he holds Zach up for the first time and the baby pees on him. They handed him to me. We made contact. Father, son, son, father. He looked me right in the eye and pissed all over me. 
He wants to be present for his son. He doesn't want to be high on drugs or drunk or in a fog in any other way. And so in addition to loving his son and feeling extremely connected to Valerie again through that, it is a very powerful motivator for him to get clean and to stay sober and to just cold turkey eliminate drugs and alcohol from his life. Yes, I do. And now that you have a child, you have to clean up your act because you can't drink anymore. You can't come home drunk and go, hey, here's a little switch. Daddy's going to throw up on you. While Robin made a point of sobering up, there was still another part of his life that he struggled to control. It can be said that he was a bit of a workaholic. Dave, did Robin at all change his working habits to be more present for Zach? I think he certainly made every effort to be, but he also kept an extremely demanding schedule. Robin is trying to sort of create these uh, opportunities where he can be with his child, be with his wife, but it's not as if his work schedule is letting up at all. Plus, around this time, he's really starting to feel the pressure to prove that he's at the top of his game. The movie Trading Places is released, and it pushes up-and-comer Eddie Murphy into the limelight. And while Robin is a fan of Eddie's talents, he's watching Eddie's star rise with this big movie break, all while he's trying to slow down and make more time for his family. And it creates this fear in him that his career is going into decline. I was in bed when he called. Well, I don't go to bed that early, and he was a little... Um you seen Trading Places? You know, hey, it's Robin. Have you seen Trading Places? I said, yeah. He said, so it's as funny as people say? I said, yeah, it's pretty funny. I, I laughed. I said, geez, so God, these guys, you know, it's kind of like, I don't think he ever said it, but the implication was, when's, when's my movie going to come? That's all for this episode of Knowing Robin Williams. When we come back next week, Robin finds the movie role that launches him from a sitcom star to a bona fide leading man. Thanks to David Skoff. Check out his book, Robin, to learn even more. And if you like what you just heard, please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If Robin had an impact on your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at knowing at macmillan.com. I'm Christy Westgard, your host and producer. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>